Can you tell me where you actually were when you heard the news that you had officially sold your company, Jukin Media, for a reported $140 million? I was sitting right here <laughs> when, I, when we were finally we signed and then we, we closed a few days later. People have warned me of this, people who sold companies. And I had a friend who sold the company a few months before I did. And uh, I texted him. Then I was texting with him that day and then I texted him the next day. You know, what did he do? You go out and party, you celebrate, you know, pop champagne. And he said, no, I, I, like I passed out at five o'clock. And I'm like, whoa, what a wuss, you know, I would have <laughs> done something, um, but I felt the exact same way. You're relieved. You're exhausted. You are absolutely mentally drained because it is a, it is a taxing uh, process uh, mentally and physically. And uh, it, it felt great, but it's also exhausting. And it was absolutely exhausting when you're done. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your gut. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. Can you state your full name? who you are and what you do. Jonathan Skagmo. I am the founder and CEO of Jukin Media. The reason that we're talking again in this format right now is because there was some big news that happened in the last like couple months. Would you care to share that news? Well, what happened in August is that we sold the business. Jukin sold the business to a company called Trusted Media Brands. And that sell price was for a reported $140 million dollars. Uh, craziness. Okay. So you've done acquisitions yourself. I mean, most notably or the one that sticks out in our last interview is when you acquired fail army from some German kid that was using all your clips. This is the first time that, um, I went through an acquisition process. Yeah. 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 And so I guess like to start, can you tell me the story of how you started even thinking about uh, an acquisition or if that is, is that like a, a, a pretty consistent process? Are you always thinking about an acquisition or is it a shift that takes place at a certain point? So it was definitely in the cards. Um, but did I know it was going to happen then? And when it happened? No, I had no idea. I'll be lying if I said that. Uh, in fact, it was actually the exact opposite. It's December 21 right now. And was, I think it was like November of 2020 um, when a banker uh, approached me and I happened to know the banker really well. And she called me one day. She's in New York and she said she's in L.A. She wants to get coffee with me. We grab coffee. But she told me she's representing this company that would be perfect for, for, for Jukin. And, you know, this, this is the is, first time you've been approached in this way. We've been, you know, there's always been interest and we've had other conversations uh, with folks, but it never gone and went down this path, uh, you know, the path of acquisition. And I don't think, you know, when I was first approached about this, I didn't think it made sense at the time at either, because this is 2020, uh, a crazy freaking year that we were having. 
And the last thing I wanted to do was get in a acquisition process. I was just happy that we survived because at one point, like any other company, when the pandemic first hit, we're looking, how do we cut? Do we need to cut costs? Uh, if we do cut costs, what will that look like in the year? And luckily, we didn't have to do any of that. We actually added bodies. We added to the workforce and our revenue grew. And so what was in the cards was for us to acquire some other companies, not to get acquired. And so I was not interested in, in having those conversations. So um, it, it's uh, it's crazy. A year later, uh, we've now been acquired. Yeah. So from that first conversation with the banker, why did your mind change? Well, I'll give her a lot of credit because I told her I'm not interested, you know, but hit me up in the new year. We'll talk in the new year, thinking I'm not going to maybe hear from this person in March. She emails me like January 4th or whatever that first <laughs> Monday is of the new year, like the first work day of the up new quick, year. Right there. Yeah, she hit me up and I remember things here. I'm like, really? And I said, okay, okay, well, I'll, I'll meet with them. And I think I pushed it off to the end of January or the first, you know, um, first week in February. She said, I would love for you to meet the management team. The management team business, of what? Trusted Media Brands. Okay. Yeah, TMB. Um, and I said, sure, why not? And so I kind of pushed the meeting back because, again, it's the start of the year. We, you know, this is a priority for you. Yeah, we're not finishing our budgeting, our forecasting yet for 21. So it wasn't a big priority. So I said, let's just push it back as far as we can without being rude. Um, and turned out to be, you know, like I said, end of January or beginning of February. And we met with these folks. Um, Can you tell me who who this brand is? Because it's not it's a lot of people know the brands below trusted media uh, brands, but they don't actually know what that, the conglomerate itself. Yeah. So um, the, the one of their biggest properties is Reader's Digest. Uh, they also have a brand called Taste of Home, a brand called Family Handyman are probably the three biggest ones that they have. And they have a bunch of smaller brands over that. But traditionally, they publish magazines uh, in the um, physical magazines. And that's what they've been doing. Uh, Reader's Digest is going to turn 100 years old next month. Okay, so yeah, they're an old, old company. They've been doing it for a second. And by definitely by comparison, like you're very new. And the and when the bank told me it's an old, like I didn't know the brand. I didn't know what Trusted Media Brands is. And when they told me it's this kind of old school publishing company, that, that didn't pique my interest at all. Why do they want to talk to us? And and they're probably looking to buy distressed assets. And we're not a distressed asset. Distressed asset. What does that mean? So like a, a company that's not doing well, you know, that's not financially strong. And the reasoning for buying in that at that point is because you get a deal. Basically. Yes, they want to get a deal. Bottom feeders. I thought maybe they're bottom feeders at the end of the day. Just trying to get a deal. It turns out that they they weren't. They were they are a, a publishing company that, that sells magazines. They have web owned and operated websites. They have a lot of first-party data. Uh, Taste of Home is like the second or third biggest uh, visited recipe website in the wow. world. Yeah, wow. to find recipes. You've probably been on it. If you ever cook and you Google how do you make this, you've probably been on it. I, I didn't realize I've been on it a hundred times. So as your idea of who this brand is is changing as you're realizing there's more aligned values and interests than you initially thought. In that first conversation, how did they communicate their position and what they wanted to you? In a lot of ways, I did not realize how similar of, of companies we, we were. So what Reader's Digest, which I, I was not aware of, I mean, they're, they're, it's the ultimate curator and aggregator of content. And they view themselves as a user-generated content company too. And what they're really good at 
is that owned and operated websites, first party data, they have really strong brands. Once we started having conversations with the management team, it just naturally just started feeling like a really good fit. We did this whole thing over Zoom. And if I could tell to have like a good chemistry uh, over Zoom, I could say, okay, well then there's probably something here. It's one thing to think that there's a fit culturally, but it's another thing to think about letting go of control of a thing that you've built. Uh, I remember something from our first interview is you talked about the freedom of owning and operating your your own company. You talked about uh, there's like this naivete of like, I can do it better. I can do it bigger. I can do it more. Right. And like, I have a couple questions here, so feel free to, to answer any of them. But like one is what is the what are the characteristics of a founder and a seller? So like what are the shares characteristics and what do you have to develop along the way? And then what is it like to emotionally let go of something you created and say like this is someone else, I'm trusting someone else to now make this bigger and better. You kind of nailed it, you know, right away. It's just like what I talked about before is like, you, you know, as, a, as an entrepreneur, as a founder, you want to be a disruptor. You want to, you know, change the way things are done. And you come up with an idea because you're trying to solve a problem or you think you could do it better. And that certainly was my mindset going into this business. Now, I've had this business, you know, you say your overnight success. It's a decade long process. I think the average life cycle of a business from finding it to selling is like 15 years. You know, you sometimes hear these overnight things, but it does take a long time. You have to be constantly, I think, evolving through the process. And so what your ultimate goal is, if you are going to sell the business, is that you want the business to run without you. You know, you have to set it up so the business is going to be running without you. And you have to put really great policies in place. You have to have amazing execution. You have to have amazing people around you. And that's what you're ultimately hoping for. Because if you, if it's the business just relies on you, you're never going to be able to scale and you're never going to be able to sell the business. You know, you want to create an atmosphere. You want to create an environment so it can live on without you. So too, and it probably happened about two years ago where I said, this thing is, is big enough. We, we sold when we had 300 people. We had consistent, somewhat predictable revenue, great historical uh, financials that I believe this business can probably now run without me. And that's what, that's what you want. If you're going to be selling your company, you want the business to run without you. Yeah. I feel like I've interviewed founders at every stage, building a business and then even now, now selling a business. I've talked to a couple of people who have gone through acquisitions, right? And something I notice for the people at the beginning is they're incredibly charismatic. And it seems like a lot of that initial growth is built off charisma and built off people buying into the charisma and then thus that vision. When did you have to switch that? Because um, it wasn't just in the last two years. You had to have that in mind for a long time before the business can run without you to actually set up the infrastructure where it can run without you. So was it like a conscious effort or was it just as it grows, you can't scale intimacy, you can't scale your charisma to all these employees. So you have to do something instead of just relying on that charisma. Well, I think that's what's so important about culture and establishing your culture really early on is that, you know, people can be ambassadors, the folks, especially the early employees. And I think we've done a really good job. Oh, that initial charisma. Yeah, that, that charisma can then carries down to the rest of the organization. And I think we've done a really good job of doing that, of, of having a strong culture, having our values, having our beliefs, 
Um, and then having these ambassadors, early employees, continue to give that messaging down to everybody else. And so I think that still happens today. So you, you've been having these conversations with uh, trusted media brands. What is it like to actually have it starting to go through? This is actually happening and I could be selling this. I didn't actually think it was happening until it happened. And that's the honest to God truth. Because it is a full freaking time job when you are running a process. Bankers, lawyers, financial accountants are involved. There's a hundred people on both sides, I think, working on the deal and having phone calls in the middle of the night, first thing in the morning, weekends. Uh, it's nonstop. And, and of course, you know, you, you hear the expression, every deal dies, you know, a few deaths. Uh, and that's 100% true. Yeah, it is not done until it's signed. And so is there more or less emotion in the ebbs and flows of whether this deal is going to go through or not? I tried to take the emotion out of it the best I could. I absolutely did. I stayed focused. I really focused on my mental health during this, really focused on the business where I could. I, I really just tried to to do what I can to keep the business forward because nothing's going to kill the deal faster if the business starts falling apart. You know, if you're not hitting your financial, if you're not hitting your budget for the year, like that'll kill the deal uh, or it'll pull back on valuation. And so my focus was trying to jump on some of these lawyer calls when I could, do the management presentations when I could, press some media brands, but also really just kind of focus on the business and kind of keep that train rolling because we couldn't, we couldn't let up. And I'm actually proud to say that this is going to be our best year ever. I wasn't thinking about the deal until it was done. And that, that's, that was my, my mindset in it. And it's hard to do that because, like I said, you have two jobs and, you know, you want the, I definitely wanted the deal to happen. I think it made sense for the business strategically. And it's hard because you're, you're juggling this process and you're juggling moving the, the, the business forward and you're delaying on projects. Uh, you're not being totally honest with your staff, which keep me alive sometimes. I had to cancel a lot of meetings. You know, I had to hop on a lot of calls, hop on a lot of other meetings. And you don't want to say anything because people worry about their job and they worry about what they're doing on, on certain projects. And so it's hard because you, you have to have this balancing act. So on that note of deal making and deal breaking, what are the things that you noticed were the quickest ways to make the deal feel like it was dead? And what were the quickest ways to make it revived once more? Well, I think because of any deal, they get very, they, deals do get emotional. And to say that I wasn't emotional during it is I tried not to be. And I think I, you know, we did a good job, but Things get lost in communications and translations and emotion does come out on both sides uh, of, a deal, of any deal. And so I think how we were able to save some of this was because there was miscommunication or things just weren't translated well or it was translated through the bankers or through the lawyers. It's not really met with the parties. And sometimes we just had to get in a room, which we physically did with TMB management and just talk out our, our, our issues and not let lawyers do it, not let bankers do it, let accountants do it, just face to face. And you can see there's no bad intent on either party. Yeah. And you can see the respect there Absolutely. and the respect. I think like what you're talking about is like, you could say something to the lawyer and the lawyer could relay exactly what you said, but maybe without a, a shroud of respect. Right. And yeah. as long as you don't lose that, the, the base of respect, then I think 
you, you both parties can and I operate. think both parties had an understanding that we wanted to get a deal done. And we wanted both parties want to be fair. And I think every time we had that communication when there was an issue and we could hop on the call with with Bonnie, who Bonnie Kinsler is the CEO. Uh, she's an amazing, amazing leader um, and an honest and generally a great person. And when I can call her up and, and, and talk out any miscommunications or mishaps, it was it always turned out for the better. And it's always been positive that way. Okay, so we talked about deal, death, and resurrection. Now uh, the deal's done; it's signed. You know it's going through. What changes? Where now? What are the emotions? Because like this whole process, you're you're not allowing yourself to actually feel, you know, happiness or really even sadness because they're so you're so frequently um, uh, put between the two. So tell like to, if you could actually place me where you're where you learn about this news and uh and what your reaction is i was sitting right here <laughs> when i when we were finally we signed and then we we closed a few days later people have warned me of this people who sold companies and i had a friend who sold the company a few months before i did and uh was texting with him that day and then i texted him the next day you know what did he do you go out and party you celebrate you know pop champagne you know and he said no i i passed out it Five, it was on a Friday night. And I'm like, whoa, what a wuss. You know, I would have <laughs> done something, but I felt the exact same way. You're relieved, you're exhausted. You are absolutely mentally drained. Because it is a it is a taxing uh process, uh, mentally and physically. And uh it, it felt great, but it's also exhausting. And it was absolutely exhausting when you're done. Are you talking about the acquisition or just building a business over the past 10, I think it's everything all comes together. Yeah. Building a business in 10 years, uh, the acquisition process, it's just, everything just comes to, you know, you work all so many years, you work so many hours all the way up to this event and then it happens. And you know, it's almost uneventful in some ways. (laughs) Well, that's what it is. It is the end of an event. Like you were running the marathon. That's it's at the end. And it's really only really started to kick in for me mentally in the last few months. Uh, we're now four months after the acquisition and it takes some time to let that kick in and then enjoy it. Enjoy what you've built. Enjoy it with the people that you built it with. It's a great feeling to feel that I built this company for my apartment and to feel recognized. Someone else recognizes and sees the value in that and what you've created. It is a really, really amazing feeling. So what now? What are you most excited about right now? What's, what is, and this could be just be relaxing. Like, what are you, what are you looking forward to right now? Also, how are you feeling just generally? I I feel great. I feel lucky. I feel blessed to be in this position. Um, I, so, like I said, so happy for, for, uh, the investors that invested in Jugen, who were able to, first round investors got 10x their money, which is, you know, awesome to say. Yeah. You know, for, I'm thankful that they believed in us, thankful for the employees that stuck around. I mean, I've had employees that's been with me for, you know, eight years, you know, uh, 10 years. Uh, it's really amazing to see that. It's rare to see that in this day and age, particularly around, you see this great resignation 
uh, they're calling it. And the folks are still here. They're still working. So I'm excited to continue building. Um, I'm going to be on as long as they want me to be on. And as long as I'm having fun, I'll tell you, there's no doubt in my mind I'm going to be starting something. Uh, I don't know what it is. I have no idea. And I don't know when. It could be a year from now. It could be 10 years from now. I don't think ideas, I don't think it just comes to you on a flip of a white, white, you know, switch. I don't think you just sit in a room, just start whiteboarding. I think it just naturally happens, some ideas. I also don't think you're the kind of person to sit around and be comfortable. Certainly not. No. I think you're the kind of person that likes the excitement of I starting. I can feed off that. Yeah. <laughs> I feed off the energy and I feed off the people around me, the energy, you know, of, of, of other people. And so, um, you know, I love the ideating and executing and operating. I love that we got to this point. Yeah. Now we're 800 people. It's not as fun when it was like 30 people, you know, but I'm still having fun. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, May B. Cannon, Sophia Donner, Maura Lynch, Zoe Maddox, Ashley Jimenez, Michael Chung, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Luis Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, Jake Wiley, Ibada Thrive, and Mecca Shelton. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Jake Wiley, Jordan Ortiz, and Sanessa Gisley. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang, Jonathan Wass, and Diana Marie Candaza. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.